This is Forum. I'm John Michaels, Public Affairs Radio Director. Since 1977, we're talking with uh, old friend Mike Milstead, Sheriff. What, 1973? I, I got back from Armed Forces Radio Network and went to KISD AM. Uh, you remember that, don't you, Mike? I sure do. Had that window on Main Street downtown. It's now KWSN, our sports station. Mike, uh, one thing about the Internet, before 1985, you can't really find much, but... Uh, uh, let's go back to, actually, you, you, you come from a, a, a police family. Tell us about your dad, Jim. Well, my dad, uh, he got hired shortly after World War II by the Aberdeen Police Department. And uh, he was, before that, he was in the Navy as a pilot. Got hired by the Aberdeen PD and had a motorcycle shop. And a, a, a gentleman that was the first superintendent of the South Dakota Highway Patrol, his last name was Getz, approached my dad and said, I'd like to have a highway patrolman on a motorcycle out in the Black Hills. Long story short, my dad ended up taking the job after they told him that the family would have to live in the Black Hills. The highway patrol put him up at Bluebell Lodge at a cabin there three months out of the year and ride a motorcycle. So he was the first motor motorcycle officer on the highway patrol. Started that in 1949, and then he retired from the highway patrol the year that I began as as a uh, police cadet on the Sioux Falls PD, which was in 1973, January of 73. Now, was that during the Sturgis rallies back in uh, your dad's days? Well, they had, they you know, I think Sturgis rally probably we went back that far, but they just wanted presence of a highway patrolman on a motorcycle in the Black Hills in general for it was becoming, rapidly becoming a favorite tourist destination, you know, from people all over the country and world. So if you think about it, if you're if you if you're a motorcycle enthusiast, you couldn't ask for a better job than that. Well, the year that my Vietnam draft was in the mail, they kind of warned me, one of the friends at the, at the draft board, I quickly signed up for the Navy like your, your dad did earlier. That's the same year you, you joined the uh, Police Explorer. Do they still have that? They still have Police Explorers. Um, it kind of struggle sometimes with getting enough people that are interested. You know, um, the profession isn't as uh, attractive to young people as it once was. You know, they see what's happening and and how the, you know, how officers are being uh, looked at or looked down upon sometimes by people in particular areas of the country where the defund the police movement moved in and, and uh, a lot of, you know, focus on on the bad side of law enforcement instead of the good side. And it's harder to get good candidates for an explorer program. You know, fortunately here in the Midwest, you know, we treat our officers very well and the public has great respect for our officers. So we kind of buck some of those, you know, big city trends of, uh, and we feel that we have great support in our community from the citizens that we serve from our, you know, for me, the County commission, I know our mayor is very you know, pro-law enforcement and our, you know, even the legislature uh, and governor's office, I think that we've seen uh, support for law enforcement as opposed, you know, I think the South Dakota, they defend the police instead of defund the police. Well, I remember that uh, the supposed police department actually sponsored Golden Gloves boxing for young people. Sure, I remember that. <laughs> Back at the old auditorium downtown. Well, uh, also, one thing I always bring up with you, and you're always honest about it, is that back in the 60s, you were the one that went and got the kegger for the party at the high school uh, events in the summertime, right? I I don't recall us oh, having that conversation. Oh, 
<laughs> but to be elected uh, as an elected office now for over 50 years, to be elected that many times uh, wasn't easy either. Well, yeah, I was appointed as sheriff initially and then went through, a, you know, I've gone through quite a few election cycles since I became the sheriff in 1997 on my birthday. So I've done just a little over 25, 25 and a half years as the sheriff, the elected sheriff. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's different. I know I, I answer to the people, which, which is, uh, you know, just, it's a great, uh, great way to, 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 uh, you know, expand our possibilities and, and be able to make decisions based on what I think is in the best interest of the, of the people. I, you know, I've been fortunate. I have a great, uh, group of individuals on the county commission, you know, their authority over the sheriff is the power of the purse or my budget. So certainly that's considerable authority, but I don't have county commissioners calling me and telling me how to do our job or what the, how the sheriff's office could function because they recognize they, their, their power is that power of the person. So, you know, we've, we've developed a longstanding relationship with the, with the commissioners and, and, uh, and so, we're, we're very fortunate, but then again, you know, I had almost a 25-year career with the Sioux Falls Police Department. Um, I, I have great respect for the men and women in blue as well as my officers and obviously from my dad's service, uh, you know, great respect for the men and women on our South Dakota Highway Patrol as well. Do high school kids still have keggers? I haven't been in high school for quite a while, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, I don't know that you call them keggers anymore, but there's certainly, you know, the, the underage uh, use of alcohol and drugs is is uh, is certainly still prevalent. Well, you remember when the drinking age was 18 back in the uh, 60s uh, and some 70s. I remember our, one of our cheerleaders got suspended uh, for, I don't know, a week from school or whatever because she was seen drinking out of a beer can. <laughs> but uh, did that... Did you see much of a change when the drinking age went from 18 to 21? It seemed like they were in a licensed uh, place before, and then afterwards they were in unsupervised home parties, I guess, that type of thing. Right. I didn't, I didn't see a, a, a huge change. You know, I was, a, I was just finishing my senior year at Lincoln High when I got hired by Bud Brown uh, at the Mokama Club to serve 3-2 beer, and, uh, and I worked there for... Throughout, you know, I don't know, for a half a dozen years at least, as a as a cop at the front door. Uh, after I got hired by the PD, I couldn't, you know, be a bartender anymore. So I, I became one of the security guards at the front door there. But um, yeah, and then it, you know, and that was a three-two beer place. You know, they called it non-intoxicating liquor, which was probably not very true because I, I know that a lot of people went to jail for drinking too many of the three-two beers, uh, and, and driving. So. Yeah, that was just a different era in our community. Downtown was a very robust uh, with 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 bars and uh, you know both both three two bars and you know the twenty one you know twenty one and over bars. Uh, yeah, it was a different atmosphere. You were there and I was there, and you were sitting in the glass window on Main at KISD. Yep, rock and roll. We uh, had a lot of fun at that station. Uh, the drug scene, though, back Sioux Falls, back where you're talking uh, now, is is in the '60s. Uh, we were only what about seventy thousand, eighty thousand people, I think, back then. 
Yeah, I was going to say 65 to 70. Yeah. And so we've seen a lot of growth, and a lot of people that are listening right now don't uh, have a clue, you know, what Sioux Falls was like back then. But uh, it has changed quite a bit. Now, the drug scene has changed quite a bit. It's mainly marijuana, I believe, and it was very weak marijuana back in in the 60s. But do you remember the uh, the DC-9 that landed near Pier? I do. Whatever happened, to, this was something that Governor Janklow uh, perked, that perked up a few years, uh, had something to do. They, they confiscated the plane for the state and then sold it, I think, right? That's correct. Yeah, it was loaded with drugs, I think, coming from out of state, and it landed out by the river, uh, I think south of Chamberlain, if I remember right, and, and Janklo seized it and and uh, sold it as a, as a you know, transporter of illegal drugs. Did they ever find out where it came from? I... I I didn't work that case. <laughs> well, that was something that you and I remember anyway, and, and uh, other people can, you know, that's just that the Internet really wasn't there back in the, those days, so it's hard to find those type of issues unless it's been, you know, brought up in a story uh, uh, after 85, I guess, in a sense in that. But uh, then again, you and I talked quite a bit about how afraid we were about crack cocaine uh, because that was something you could make in a pop bottle, basically uh, anywhere in your kitchen type of thing, and that really did change things a lot, didn't it? Well, cocaine in general, you know, was was becoming popular. It was more of a designer drug. It was, you know, it was very expensive. So, um, you know, there were some pretty prominent people who got got crosswise with the law and the, and with the courts um, back in the days where cocaine was kind of the 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 designer drug of choice. You know, we've seen a complete transition of that, and the same with marijuana, where, you know, in the 70s, early 80s, there was a lot of ditch weed around Sioux Falls, you know, and it and it was probably less than 10% of the potency of what we're seeing today, probably considerable less than that. I mean, we're seeing high, high-potency marijuana and edibles, and, you know, it's just, it's not even comparable to what you know what somebody might have snuck behind a, a tree in in Sherman Park or Tuthill Park after school uh, back in the 70s. Well, you brought up ditch weed. I guess we got to explain that uh, a lot of South Dakota farmers grew uh, marijuana uh, actually during World War II for the Navy to make rope. It made really good rope out of that. Uh, but that's why there was so much, like we call ditch weed, uh, growing in South Dakota back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. I was talking to Sheriff Mike Milstead, uh, the uh, aspect of uh, the drugs, uh, I, I guess, you, you, you know, the crack cocaine really had an effect uh, quite a bit. I mean, if you're buying a house, you have to really make sure that the crack cocaine was never in that house because you probably wouldn't be able to sell it again. That had, had to be actually written into the, uh, the uh, information for the house after that. Well, that was primarily methamphetamine, not crack cocaine. Um, the, the methamphetamine was what we were seeing people, you know, set up small labs. Uh, they, they had a number of different ways to manufacture, uh, methamphetamine. You know, that's when, when they put in the, uh, you know, trying to monitor the purchases of, of pseudoephedrine because that was the key ingredient that you could go, you know, buy a hundred boxes of pseudoephed and then, and then through, you know, better life through chemistry, I guess, that they would use uh, what 
would be, you know, deadly toxic substances to cut that down and turn it into methamphetamine. And there were a number of ways that they were doing it. One of them was by, uh, you know, involved the use of anhydrous ammonia. So we had we had drug uh, drug dealers and manufacturers stealing um, stealing anhydrous ammonia out of farmers, you know, tanks out in the field and we had people lose their lives out there because that's I mean it's if if you get a whiff of that at the wrong moment or the wrong in the wrong way it just kills you it freezes your lungs so so some of the toxic substances that were being used to manufacture methamphetamine or extract it from things like Sudafed uh, got into the carpets and got into the walls and the ceilings on houses and you're right you know, you'd, you'd have to make sure that, you know, if, if it turned out it was your house was a meth lab, I remember one of them on the central part of Sioux Falls, they actually had to tear it down because there was just too much too much meth, uh, too many toxic chemicals in the carpet and the wall and ceiling. They just they just bulldozed the house. Talking to Sheriff Mike Milstead, uh, Sheriff from Minneapolis County, uh, one of the things about meth uh, that we talked about back then was the cost, uh, the cost of rehab. Uh, the cost of jailing uh, because of the uh, addiction that made quite a uh, made it kind of hard with the county sometimes having to pay some of those costs. It's, in other words, the rehabilita- rehabilitation for meth was five, ten times more than uh, alcohol. Well, it, and it, you know, unfortunately, not a lot has changed there. You know, there's there's some really uh, there's there's some really effective medication-assisted treatment programs for opioid addiction, um, MAT programs. We actually start those programs now, screen people, and then start start some of that medication-assisted treatment for opioid addicts that are in our jail that come into our custody and then connect them with services on the outside. Um, you know, it depends on, you know, it's, it's, it's expensive. You know, the medication's expensive, but it's, it's life-saving for those who are successful in it, um, but but there's just not a medication for meth addiction like there is for opioids, and so it's it's a that's an addiction that is still you know extremely difficult to to counter it's, uh, to try to get someone who absolutely wants to quit. Um, their brain has to get right to be able to accept treatment, and sometimes that can take three months or so. And it's not unusual to need 18 months of treatment uh, for meth addiction to, to, to maybe be successful. And then if you go back into the same community or group of group of friends that you had before, you you probably fall right back off. Um, it, it, it's a devastating drug, and and now, you know, it, you know. The days of meth labs in Sioux Falls and Minneapolis County or rural South Dakota are pretty well gone. We don't have meth lab cases anymore because there is so much uh, meth coming across our southwest border. There's so much fentanyl and opioids coming across our southwest border into America that there's no need to try to make it yourself. A couple of sheriffs just testified, I think, in the Senate this last week uh, with that problem down there. We've always had a, a somewhat of a geographical, you know, crossroads of two interstates, I-90 and I-29. Uh, and there's always been traffic going, you know, across the state. And I think uh, you know, the DCI either has balloons or something that 
keeps track of that during the Sturgis days. But uh, what is your connection? Uh, let's take away from drugs here a little bit. Uh, the sheriff, a lot of people don't realize that a lot of your time is spent uh, serving papers. Yeah, I, I can say that that's one of our busy divisions that we have here. You know, I obviously the sheriff responsibility is, is pretty expansive and just just by state statute what the sheriff shall do and one of them is serve writs and warrants and civil process so um now that i have a whole civil division and and so they're basically serve well, eighteen thousand civil papers in a year's time now that could be uh, a protection order could be a a, a notice like a a, a, a could be a garnishment on the wages. It could be um, seizing money in a bank account uh, for a judgment or execution. It could be uh, foreclosing on a home. It could be uh, divorce papers. It could be um, uh, you know other legal proceedings all that all land in our lap to be served by the sheriff. So that that division is extremely busy. And it's important work. I mean, some of it is, uh, you know, like priority protection orders where someone needs to be served so that we know that they, you know, the the spouse or, or, or you know, someone has been violated and, and is in great fear for their life. And so we have to try to find that individual and serve them the papers so that they're aware that they're prohibited from having any contact or even third-party contact. Did you feel that there was a uh, change during the COVID years, uh, like domestic abuse or maybe foreclosures, that type of thing, that was tied to the, the COVID problems? Oh, well, we had, you know, there were a few things, but obviously it, those things didn't stop. Um, there was a little, there were there were some breaks in, in doing uh, evictions uh, on certain properties uh, because of COVID, but we worked through those. Um, but for the most part, our, our work didn't stop uh, when COVID hit. It just, we had to make some real significant adjustments to how we did our job and how we interact with the public and how we keep the public safe. Uh, obviously, in our jail division, which, you know, we have about 507 prisoners in jail today that we're responsible for, you know, that certainly impacted us there with, with uh, uh, you know, quarantine and, and uh isolation and staff wearing full N95 masks and personal protective equipment. You know, it was very trying on our staff operating in a correctional environment, especially when they would be assigned to a unit that had people in it that were all COVID positive. So I credit, you know, the men and women uh, on the sheriff's office that did that. And the same for our police officers and deputies and troopers out out in the field inter- interacting, go- still going on calls of service, still going to medical emergencies where people had COVID, were COVID positive and struggling with, with breathing problems or, you know, other other medical issues. We didn't stop working. We, we kept working, and, and I credit, you know, a, a lot of them for what they did. They, it was, they, they, they toughed it out and did the right thing, and, and, uh, and that's, I guess, what our public would expect. Talking with Sheriff Mike Milstead, I'm a county sheriff. Uh, you and I both are old enough to remember the, there actually was a drunk tank in the uh, lower, while well, the sheriff's department was in the Minnehaha County Courthouse, the old, now, museum. Uh, it's come a long way since that. 
It has. Yeah, we were, you know, just not not in the old courthouse museum, but just to the west of it. That small mm-hmm. building was was the jail and the sheriff's office, and eventually that moved into the public safety building, which has since been, you know, is no longer the police department and sheriff's office. That just houses Metro Communications and and you know the the IT department for the county. And then we since moved over to the law enforcement center. Uh, on fourth, on fourth, the triage was, I think, kind of one of your ideas or the one that you really promoted quite a bit. In fact, uh, I think you uh, wanted to stay in to make sure that that got done. That, that's working pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it, it's called the link, and I, I'd like to say it was my idea, but it wasn't. It was a, it was a group of us that were all meeting, talking about the issues that we were facing and what could be a good solution, and so we we collectively start looking at places that had triage centers um, to, to try to, you know, for people that had drug at, drug addictions or if they were drunk on the street or, you know, that we were crowding the emergency departments on Fridays and Saturday. Uh, we were crowding the jail with people that were just drunk or had drug issues. And so that was the vision. And it's, you know, it's, it's making progress. Uh, right now it, primarily dealing with people with alcohol addiction and drug you know some drug addiction as well and and it's kind of a one-stop shop for people like that we haven't got the level of mental health services there that I think all of us would like to see um, but I think that's still a goal so uh, but it does provide a detox service and it does provide a sobering center so that they don't have to bring them to the jail they don't have to take people to the emergency department when somebody truly needs medical care the the rooms aren't filled up with people that were just drunk on the street and bumped their head or something a lot of people don't realize but if you call now the Sioux Falls Police Department and I, I think connected with yours too um, an emergency you can ask for an officer trained in mental health can't you now in Sioux Falls well, they have they have quite a few officers that are trained like that, and I, you know, it, it would not be uncommon for one to show up on the scene anyway. But certainly, if if it was somebody struggling with mental health issues, and you let the nine one one center know that right away, uh, you know, they certainly would take that in consideration on who they send on the call. Well, but, from you know, a lot of the officers are trained in crisis intervention. Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a big focus of law enforcement, both both here with the sheriff's office and the PD. And so it's, you know, and fortunately, and we have a mobile crisis team as well, you know, practitioners that can go out and, and assist on the scene instead of having to put somebody in an emergency hold. So there's a lot of success in that area. There's not nearly enough uh, for, to, to meet the demand. And, you know, law enforcement kind of ended up taking that challenge on because there was no one else doing it. But I really don't know if that's the right place for it to be long long term. So you know, working on better solutions to response to people with mental health issues is something that we always have to be looking forward on and looking for best practices so that we we make sure that we deal with those individuals in the appropriate way with with the right resources. 
the VA just opened the mental health building, uh, and the Sanford has got a mental health building, a big one that's going to be opening this spring, so we, I think we can see a little bit of help there. Uh, are you connected in the penitentiary as a sheriff's department in some way? You know, we we interact with the penitentiary, and I will say that uh, Secretary Wasco is the governor's new Secretary of Corrections. Uh, uh, I've had multiple conversations with her uh, since she took office here uh, this this past fall, uh, and I can tell you, you know, the a, a group was informally formed uh, by Mayor Tenaken and uh, involves uh, myself and the mayor, the police chief, our state's attorney, and then our counterparts in Pennington County and Rapid City, and then we also invited, you know, like Kelly Wasco, the secretary of DOC. And on those discussions as well, the uh, UJS or Unified Judicial System leadership so that we can start looking at at these uh, repeat offenders that we're seeing that are involved in violent crime in our communities who have who are already under supervision of either probation or parole. And uh, and I, I, I mean, I'm I'm able to say, you know, with a little bit of enthusiasm that a pretty a really good piece of legislation that we were supporting passed uh, this past week in the South Dakota legislature. Uh, it was uh, Senate Bill 146. Uh, Daniel Hager, our state's attorney, was responsible for the actual drafting of the bill. It was carried by uh, Brent Hoffman, a, a senator out of the Hartford area, and uh, received strong support from the the sheriffs in South Dakota, the chiefs, the state's attorneys, and the attorney general. And uh, although we were a little concerned when it finally went to vote, it 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 had it passed with uh, you know it, it passed very well. I think it was fifty three to seventeen in the House, and uh, and it did even better in the Senate. Uh, so we're excited excited about it. And what it is is a, it's a truth and sentencing bill to hold violent offenders accountable and they'll serve most of their sentence now instead of getting all these early release revolving doors that we've seen over the years that have plagued our 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 communities and our public safety so Michael, uh, we, we are save, really encouraged I'm, I'm trying to save we're some looking time forward here. to the governor signing it but mm-hmm. I want to get uh, into, I was kind of saving this, but I'm running out of time. Is fentanyl is a big thing that you're really concerned about in in South Dakota? It is. You know, it's it's the scourge right now. Um, Even in in our community, fentanyl is killing people at, at, uh, you know, know, it's it's scary stuff, quite frankly. The the Drug Enforcement Administration, in their last seizures where they got about 20 million of those pills, um, they had reported that four out of every ten of those pills now that they're seizing these counterfeit uh, pills uh, are lethal doses. Well, now they've upped that to six out of ten. So six out of every ten fentanyl uh, counterfeit pills that are coming across the border and into the U.S. are are lethal doses. And what they are is they're is the the fentanyl comes from China. It comes by the boatload into into Mexico. The, the the cartels there then blend it, and they'll press it uh, into into things that look like normal prescription pills, like oxycodone or M30 tablets, Valium, Xanax, Ativan. 
So we, they end up looking just like a prescription pill, but they're actually coming in to to uh, to hit our drug market. And and again, like I said, with about sixty percent of them have lethal doses in them. Uh, it, it's 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 just ripping America apart. One hundred eight thousand overdose deaths last year, with about seventy percent of those are from fentanyl. And so it's interesting that even though we're uh, you know we're a long ways from our southwest border. It has literally made every county in America a border county. One, one more thing, all Mike, being before, impacted before we run out of time, of our, our new news our director, Mike border. Rooney, wanted me to uh, ask you, uh, he's going to be doing some things with you on, on drugs, too, coming up down the line. Uh, he says there's a new drug coming through. Is that something that uh, you're seeing at all in South Dakota yet? Well, um, there are some new ways to make to use fentanyl. Uh, if I remember right, it might be xylene, but there are, there's always something new coming, but a lot of times it's an analog or they'll just take and change the chemical component a little bit to try to make it legal instead of illegal. So there will always be another one headed down the road, but I will tell you that fentanyl right now is deadly. It's devastating. If you have a loved one who's even trying to experiment with these with these opioids, even even think well, they say, well, no, I'm not taking fentanyl. I'm taking you know Ativan or I'm 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 grinding up an M30 tablet. Well, if that M30 tablet didn't come from your pharmacist and you as the person that should have it, it's it's likely counterfeit and it's likely going to kill you. So if you have somebody that's experimenting with that stuff, they need help. With that, I'm out of time, Mike. Uh, Sheriff Mike Milstead, Minneapolis County, uh, I want to thank you very much. We talked about quite a few things, and thank you for being with us on 4. You bet.